Well, hello once again, everyone. Welcome to After Further Review with Mark Ferrer and John Pelkey. Producer Jeff Taylor with us as always. Certainly hope you're having a good uh, a good week or five days, I guess, since we last dropped in on you on Monday, depending on when you listened. Um, well, it's a good thing we're doing a deep dive today, Mark, because really nothing in sports happened. <laughs> <laughs> no, we've had actually some listeners that chime in to say maybe you uh, answer this crap. Maybe yeah, maybe you'll put off deep dive seven and just you know talk about sports because like there's actual sports, actual things going on, which are highly noteworthy. Yep, I guess so, but doesn't matter because we're gonna go look back fifty years at an oft forgotten game because what the hell, Mark and I have nothing to do but research papers. Yes, it's really, what this has turned into. And, uh, and very quickly though, before we jump into this, and we're, and we're gonna try. To, I'm gonna try to make yeah. this a little more uh, succinct than our deep dives have become. Um economy of words um college football i mean that is obviously the huge story i mean playoffs and stuff going on but the fact that the pac-12 and the big 10 have both uh, said they're not going to play um i just want to ask you mark what's your level of confidence with the sec acc and big 12 at this point well i will tell you this john that my level of confidence is relatively high because i think um they're going to be it. First of all, let's start with this. Let's face it. College football has become a regional sport for the most part outside of the South. People don't care as much. Some a little bit in the Midwest here and there, but people in the North still pretty big Ten country, still pretty big deal in in yeah. in the Midwest to some degree. Yes, I agree with that. But, but on the coasts, you elite. You coastal elite. Well, the 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 two coasts which is, you know, everything west of the Mississippi. And, uh, and, and yes, the south, including Texas, that's why the Big 12 is interesting. But it's very regional. The, 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 the best teams now that, the big, that Ohio State has opted out, because that's the only team outside of the south, John, that is competitive nationally. That's the only team. Well, I mean, so hold it's, on. Let it's me a regional that. sport. And I, Wisconsin's a, a good football team. Minnesota had a good year. But to, to your point, the only team outside of the South that's going to contend for a national championship, to your point, is Ohio State. So Apologies to Penn State fans listening. Lenny, sorry. So now they're out, and it's and it's essentially a regional sport. And I think in this region, we've seen this. You know, regardless of how you come down on the political side of things, the South has tried its best to live with this, if you will, mm-hmm. to live with the to live with the virus for better or for worse. We can that's a whole sure. series yeah. of shows. Yeah. But with that spirit in mind, they're going to see if they can make football work. And yeah. I think there'll be a little bit of a template there for the NFL also. So I I'm frankly hoping that they can, because I think that the more we can learn to live with it, safely, responsibly, obviously with those caveats, is the better we are. I think we the, the 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 if anyone's rooting for, you know, college football to implode or things to just keep going to hell just because it's, you know, for some political reason. Yeah, that's I don't know. There's a, I think there might be something going on in the fall politically. But I I I think we need Personally, we need to just step past that and um, and just root for it. Root root for us figuring this damn thing out. Because John, the reality of us truly never working our 
chosen field again yeah. is becoming starker and starker. It's not a joke. It, it, it literally is a self-fulfilling prophecy at this point. I don't think there's any doubt about it. Yes. There's no doubt about it. Anyway, so I'm, ro- I'm rooting for it, and I... I'm relatively optimistic. I'm in the 80s, I think. Low 80s, but 80s. How about yeah, you? I think they're I really think they're going to start a season. Now, whether they're able to finish the season, there are right. a lot of there are a lot of things going on there. I also thought and before we jump in and we're going to jump in really really quickly, though I will point out my buddy David, our buddy David Lowe's comment about he's so happy about the Big 10 and he's a Northwestern grab, but happy about the Big 10 canceling uh football because of how angry the Ohio State fans are. And I, I agree with that. So as long if they're unhappy, I'm happy. That's all I'm going to say. Um, but uh, the other thing is baseball talking about bubbling for the playoffs was the other story that I thought. And I, I think that, that that may be a smart move for them, given the possibility of a spike again in the fall and the fact that right. the couple of breakouts that we, we have seen, we've talked about this, are generally due to guys not using good common sense and some guys, Clevenger, still not doing it from time to time. But uh, they've done a nice job mitigating. But I, I do like the idea where they're talking about perhaps doing that for the playoffs because I think that gives them a really, really solid chance of getting through a World Series. Even if there is a spike. We talked about it the last episode, how successful the NBA and the NHL are. What what is it, Jeff and John? You guys might know this, but I read something that there are 7,000 tests that have happened in the NHL thus far. I think it was 7,700. Zero positives. Yep. And when's the last when's the last positive for the NBA? Maybe three, four weeks ago. Yeah, I mean, it's been a while. The bubble clearly works. Now the NBA is opening the bubble a little over there at Disney, so that's something to keep an eye on because they're going to start letting family members and stuff come in. And again, you start adding people, they're always going to be trouble. But I think they've done an excellent job. I agree with you, and Are I love going to let local PA announcers come in as well. No, 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 no. no. In fact, I, uh, I I called the office over at uh, the. Uh, ESPN Wide World of Sports, and I, they must have caller ID because if they don't, this is probably uh, this is probably frowned upon. Uh, uh, literally picked up the phone. I don't know who it was. Just said go to hell, and then hung up. And I'm like, all right, yeah, probably, probably, probably should go to hell. You know, Lake yeah, of Fire. Clearly, they knew it was us. I'm not a Yankee fan. It won't be straight to the Lake of Fire. They'll actually have to explain to me why no. I'm burning in hell. At least you'll have a transition. Yeah, Yankee fans don't. That's all you can ask for. We know this. That's all you can ask for. All right, so you ready to do this thing? I am. I can't wait for this. I love this topic, John, because it's underreported. We've been talking about it for a while now. Not a lot of people talk about Super Bowl Four, Right, and because it's not really a great football game when it comes down to it, though I did watch the broadcast of the entire game, and there is no network broadcast of the game. The There's a restoration of the game, largely in black and white, with also some NFL film stuff thrown in there that some guy took uh, under just went after. And it's taken it's taken from a kinescope of the broadcast in Canada. That's where it comes from. So it's the CBS team. And we'll talk about those guys in a minute. But uh, it's uh, there. There is no (laughs) video. There's no full game video of the game because uh tape uh recording on tape was expensive so basically what they would do was they'd record it and then they'd pull off highlight stuff and then they just erase the tape inconceivable today that that could happen it is i and and i also think that they just weren't that into it and they probably were worried if you think about it john in terms of corporate conglomerates that have you know ruled the world we can probably go back about 50 years when it all sort of coalesced. And, and part of it was around the NFL. They realized after this one, it's like, this is not going to work. 
we need to engage the crowd, the 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 nation with a story. So let's have the uh, let's start with an America's team in the seventies. Let's start that next year. Yeah. Let's go back to the old NFL Colts that everyone loves, you know. And from then on, it was uh, pre-planned. Well, television <laughs> television in the sixties really built uh, the NFL. I mean, that is it, it. It became you know prior to that, baseball is America's pastime. But really, what brought t- uh, football to the fore was it's it's a better television game i think both of us agree that you see a lot more uh you can go to a baseball game and and watch a baseball game on television and get somewhat the same experience as to what you're seeing a a professional or college football game in a stadium is vastly different than what you see on television and the television coverage given the the way the game is is just much better all right so and we'll we'll debate that another time we'll dive into sports broadcast but let's jump into the road to Super Bowl four, um, starting with Super Bowl three. Mark, as you know, in January of 1969, Super Bowl three, the upset of the century, the New York Jets upset the Baltimore Colts. There we see Joe Namath um, 16 to seven. The Jets were 18 point underdogs in that game. And. At that point, Mark, and uh, you were eight then, so you're starting to get aware of. But I, I'm I'm only four years old. I don't remember any of this. But the 18 point underdog thing, from everything I've seen, seems like it's pretty conservative, given what people thought was going to happen. In well, this you, game. you have to remember that the NFL was a powerhouse. Yeah, they were the established league. Every the narrative was they had the better team. Look at the first two Super Bowls. Green Bay rolled over Kansas City and rolled over Oakland. And so now here we are. The Jets come in, who are a fancy, flashy team with some, you know, and and they've been terribly inconsistent with Joe Namath. They have been a very inconsistent team. Joe Namath, an inconsistent quarterback. Really, yeah. he's the most overrated Hall of Famer probably out there. Um, you could make an argument and. But the thing is, is that Baltimore, you forget how dominant they were. I think they lost one game that year. And in the championship game, they beat, you know, this Cleveland Browns team was a perennial playoff team. And and we'll get to that a little bit later. And then won the championship only four years prior. They they shut them out like 35, 34 to nothing. I think. Yeah. Yeah. I believe 34 to nothing was the score of that game. Yeah, it was. uh, Many people considered that Baltimore uh, Colts team the best team in NFL history. And remember, that's coming uh, after the the Green Bay Packer run where. Yeah. You know, so that's that's saying a lot. Um, But it was it was a huge, huge upset. Um, It changed a few people's minds. But right. Not the majority of people. The majority of people f- still thought there was a lot of talk. And I read, went back and read a bunch of stuff. A lot of talk. And even from Colts players saying we probably took them too lightly. I don't necessarily think that's correct. Um, I think the Jets uh, may very well have been a uh, a better coached team, if I may, at that point. I know that's n- no slight on Don Shula, who's one of the all-time greats. But I think they were better coached for the game, better prepared for the game. The uh, the Colts may very well have been over rehearsed and underprepared. <laughs> yes, and they're I, I think to your point, and you may allude to this later, but they you know one decade was playing another in terms of coaching stuff. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And, and, and I mean, think about it in our country as well. Just everything was about the old and the new, and the fact that Namath did that and upset the apple cart so remarkably 
really set everyone on on a path to saying that that's possible. But you're right, John. If it wasn't followed up like that, it would have been it would have been forgotten as a blip. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. As a fluke. Um, Yep, it really would have. All right, so let's jump for, let's jump back in our story now. Let's jump back and talk about the AFL a little bit. It had come into existence in uh, 1960. It was the first, excuse me, the fourth direct competitor to the NFL. There had been other AFLs, Mark, American Football Leagues in 26, 36, and 40. None of them had survived. Um, the successful league prior to the AFL had been the All-American Football Conference, which existed from 1946 to 1949. Um, it's, I think, Mark, sometimes it's forgotten because it actually three teams from that league ended up in the NFL, but the Cleveland Browns were champions every single year. So I think a lot of people forget there was a whole league involved with getting Cleveland to the NFL, but they just dominated. And then, uh, you know, underrated quarterback, Otto Graham, number 10, he's just that, uh, you know, or 60, I'm sorry. You know, he wore different numbers because they had those funky numbers early yeah. on. And then they started to uh, to try to change that and give uniform numbers for different positions. But, yes, he's number 60. <laughs> and, and so but but I mean, you're right. It, what they did, what Cleveland was able to do back then, Otto Graham played in 10 consecutive championship games, half of those in the NFL. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um a couple of interesting things about the American Football Conference there. Uh, excuse me, uh, the All-American Football Conference. Sleepy Joe, uh, Sleepy Jim Crowley was their commissioner. Um, oddly, jumping back to my 1941 talk, uh, Elmer Layden was the NFL commissioner at that time. If you're watching on YouTube, that's Sleepy Jim up top left and bottom right. That is uh, Elmer Layden. They were both members of the famous four horsemen of Notre Dame. I, now, I don't know if any thought was put into that, if maybe, you know, maybe Layden and Crowley, let's just create that situation. Layden and Crowley hated each other. And uh, <laughs> Crowley had stolen Layden's wife. I don't know. We'll just make up some wow. sort of story. And that, wow. uh, and that uh, he basically took on the commissionership of this league to uh, as a slap in the face to his old... But again, the story... Ends in redemption, John, because they they merge. Yeah, and, and maybe what? Because in the end, they realized that the that the memories they had sharing horses together on the ground. Wow, <laughs> this is gone. This thing has become a. Oh my God! Now all of a sudden, it's a Lord of the Rings story. He's laid with his horse. What? Jesus! God Almighty! Say it isn't so. Oh yeah, so but, it's a it's a redemptive story. As, yeah, nonetheless, they, did, they were able to they were able to merge a bit. I, as I mentioned, the 49ers and the Colts came over along with the Cleveland Browns. And it should be pointed out in 1949 there was an exhibition game between the Philadelphia Eagles and the Cleveland Browns. Now, as we pointed out, the Cleveland Browns at that time were one of the best teams in. Uh, well, they were the best team in the All-American uh, Football Conference. The Eagles were also a very, this Greasy Neal's uh, Philadelphia Eagle team that was also very good in the NFL. And the Browns beat them 35-10. to 10. Now, it was an exhibition game. But uh, as as it was pretty obvious at that point that these teams were on a par uh, with one another. So Cleveland, 49ers, Colts, they move over to, uh, they merge with the NFL for the 1950 season. And just to prove a point, the Browns decide, hey, look, we want all those AAFC championships. We want to, we don't care for the trophy. We, we don't care. It looks like Crowley's wife. 
I don't know. I don't, I'm not sure what it is. I have no idea. I'm, I'm going to stay with that story, the Crowley-laden uh, feud. Um, the Browns go on to make it to the playoffs. They beat the New York Giants. They beat the Los Angeles Rams. And in their very first year in the NFL, they win the championship. How about that? It's pretty remarkable. It's amazing. Talk it's about an amazing a deep story. AAFC. Paul, yeah, Paul Brown, a- AAFC. Great deep dive. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> We're it, going it, further and further back. <laughs> We're going to go very far back next week as right. well. Abner Doubleday, the early years. He was born in a Marco Polo. <laughs> Did he originate <laughs> the underwater contest? The Iron Age Lacrosse Championships. <laughs> yeah. Hey, these guys got a podcast. Kane versus Abel. <laughs> right. Uh, Kane, huge favorite in that. I was yeah, going big, big time. Big yeah. time. At least 18 and a half points. All right. So we're going to jump ahead now to uh, the American Football League, which, again, um, started in first season they play was 1960. Lamar Hunt was the man. That's him in the middle circle. If you're uh, watching on the YouTube was the man most responsible for that. Lamar Hunt had tried to purchase Mark, the Chicago Cardinals, which were the least successful team in the National Football League, as did Bud Adams. That's Bud on the left, who would be the Houston Oilers owner. Uh, They wanted to move them to Dallas. Yes, they wanted to move them to Dallas. And, of course, the NFL, first of all, George Preston Marshall, the vitriolically racist owner of the Washington Redskins, had a monopoly on the South. The Skins were, uh, at that point, were the team that played furthest uh, south in the National Football League. And he had a series of television networks. It was a little bit like the Yankees in that he had television networks all the way through the south into Texas. And this, the Redskins, uh, the last team to integrate, by the way, were like the Southerners team. That was kind of the team that uh, that, that represented the south. Um, so he didn't want any competition and he knew if you, you know, if, uh, you start getting other owners and moving teams to down South, that's going to affect him. So he, uh, Hunt isn't allowed to do that, but Adams, they don't, uh, uh, they, they won't let in the old, uh, owners. Um, they won't let in, in the old owners club. Uh, so Lamar Hunt gets the idea. He's going to form his own, uh, form his own league. The thing they had going for them, Mark was you see Bud Adams and Lamar Hunt, both money. Uh, the other gentleman in the picture there was Baron Hilton from Hilton yeah. Hotels. Yeah, They had a lot of money. They had a lot of money. And that was important because most startup leagues don't have that kind of uh, cash. Um, Bud Adams, oil man. Filthy rich. Lamar Hunt, oil man. Filthy uh, rich. Filthy rich. You know, one of the Illuminati. Yep, Absolutely. Um, <laughs> clearly, you know what? Maybe that's the name. Maybe that's the subtitle of today's deep dive. Deep the dive Illuminati. seven, the road to Super Bowl four, Lamar Hunt, Illuminati. I like it. I like it. <laughs> so by 1960, the, the AFL is set to go with their, uh, with their eight teams, um, should be pointed out that initially one of those teams was going to be in Minnesota. Uh-huh. But, the National Football League owners approached the, uh, the 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 ownership group for that Minnesota AFL franchise. So you get the sense that the NFL worried early on that they kind oh, yeah. of realized because they'd fought expansion and probably had they expanded in the you know ten years prior when they had opportunities, none of this would have happened. 
but they fought expansion. They offered a franchise in Minnesota to the National Football League, and the Vikings right. would come online in 1961, a year after the AFL. They are replaced by the Oakland Raiders. We're all better off because of that. Um, because it created the best rivalry in the in the AFL and one of the flagship NFL teams for many of us who started watching the game in the early 70s. Minnesota, by the way, would be a pretty interesting deep dive. Minneapolis, because in 61, they got the Twins as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, How about that? Getting a foot, a Major League Baseball and an NFL team in your city the same year. And that 61 um, Minnesota Twins team was actually the Washington Senators who yep. were, you know, first in love, first in first in peace, first in war, last in the American League was how they talked about the Senators. By the way, they would be replaced by another Senator team that would come online and play. So they never had a year where there was a disruption and they, they were equally as bad as the original Senators. And Calvin Griffiths, right, is his name, uh, the Griffiths. owner yep. of, the, of the Senators and then the Twins. Yep. Absolutely. Very nice. Virulent, virulent racist yep. whose statue was taken down from the latest twin stadium. Yep. Absolutely. We should just point that out. We should point that out. So your original eight teams in the uh, AFL, as I mentioned, were the New York Titans. They would become the Jets, Boston Patriots, Buffalo Bills, Houston Oilers, the Los Angeles Chargers, um, Denver Broncos, Oakland Raiders, and the Dallas Texans. Also should point out that in 1960, the NFL on realizing that uh, the Dallas market would now be taken over by the Texans and that huge market could not be surrendered to the AFL all on its own. Right, right, right. They, uh, they decided to make the world a dirty, dirty, ugly place. And they gave a franchise to the Dallas Cowboys. So let's, I think we have and the Clint Dallas. Ferguson, who may very well have also been involved yes. with uh, Lamar Hunt's father in the Kennedy assassination. That's oh, for yeah. another deep dive. No, and it really is. Dallas's connection to everything wrong with America <laughs> is yeah. our next deep dive. I mean, that's a, I think I think most historians would agree with that premise, would wouldn't you, John? Yeah, absolutely. We'll have Riley Claremont on and we will debate who is more responsible for all the bad things that have ever happened. The Dallas Cowboys or England. Riley will argue for England. He believes yeah. the English are involved and uh I believe it's Either the Cowboys or the Yankees. One of those two things. And 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 those are all arguable points. So England, you know, England did not contribute to, uh, or they did contribute mightily to where we are right now. Sure. So that's good. So can we see that Texan? I want to see that Texan logo first real quick. Well, if you don't mind, people are listening right now going, why, why don't you just move on, Mark? Yeah. Let's yeah. just move on. All right, let's let's just move on. Um, another thing that they we said they had deep pockets, the ownership. Another thing they really had going for them, Mark, is that um, they got a really good television contract early on with ABC, the American Broadcasting uh, Company. And ABC, interestingly enough, Mark was always the poor stepchild of sure. all the networks. They had the least money. Yes. Um, the thing about that is it made them the most flexible. Um, in things that they did, they did innovative things. That's how Wide World of Sports came to play, uh, came to be, and a lot of innovative things. Rune Arledge was certainly involved in many of those. Um, but that ABC TV uh, contract mark gave the owners in the AFL almost exactly the same money that the NFL owners were getting from broadcast. So right away, this puts them on generally even footing. As far as revenue goes, see, you know, think about that. That's just such classic American entrepreneurial. Sure. Capitalistic. 
kind of things, but it's very American. It's like I, we, we are languishing down here. So how can we actually use the fact that we don't have very many good shows and not, you know, not great advertising revenue? How do we use that to our advantage? So, uh, you know, yeah, good for them. It was one of the big reasons why. And that contract for the ABC TV was uh, negotiated by a uh, high powered Manhattan lawyer by the name of Jay Michaels, okay. um, who um, the father of Mark. Do we know? I believe Al Michaels. Al Michaels, absolutely correct. Al Michaels' dad helped uh, negotiate the original ABC TV contract. Um, the AFL would move to NBC. Uh, so he came from big privilege, Al Michaels. <laughs> oh, God, yeah. Explains so much. Uh, it, really, it really, really does. Okay. Um, uh, the first commissioner of the American Football League was, uh, this is also very helpful, this is just background information on the AFL, was a guy by the name of Joe Foss. Joe Foss was a Medal of Honor winner, a World War II fighter pilot and a hero. Um, he was the governor of South Dakota at one point. He was president of the NRA in 1988. Um he was also a broadcaster. I mean, Joe Foss is one of these overachieving guys who's amazing. And he had a bit of a back. He played college football, um, did Joe Foss. But really what he was able to do for the AFL is no one could not take a call from Medal of Honor winner and World War II fighter pilot Joe Foss. Um, and no one could close a door on him. So he, when they were discussing whether or not he wanted this job and what he thought he could bring to the table, he said, I can open every door in America. And he was really right. So they had a lot of things working for them. They really did. And unfortunately, Joe Foss had ended tragically when Wayne LaPierre uh, had him assassinated. No, he did was not killed by Wayne. (laughs) He died of old age. I I thought that was how the transfer power in the NRA happened. I guess I'm I'm mistaken. Uh, Uh, so that's what they had going for them. Also should be said that they were remarkably stable early on. Most of the leagues, um, after their first year, the teams would fold and other teams would pop up. They only had one major move that first year. And that was that the chargers, Baron Hilton's chargers went from LA to San Diego. That was really the only big change that they had. They did, however, have a couple of really, really, uh, they had a lot of really smart talent evaluators and also, um, negotiators because in their first year of existence the afl signed 75 percent of the nfl's first round draft choices oh my gosh that is truly rating three out of four yeah and they just basically just threw money at people so so the nfl did not know what hit them at this point absolutely no idea in fact their their biggest signing was heisman trophy winner out of lsu the 59 heisman trophy winner billy cannon um, there's Billy, uh, uh, for those of you listening again, I sh- probably shouldn't say that. Um, what he had already signed a contract with the Los Angeles Rams for $50,000, the Oilers and Bud Adams with his deep pockets offered Cannon a hundred thousand dollars. So Cannon being Billy Cannon and if you Google him folks, he wasn't a terribly upstanding citizen for <laughs> a lot, uh, for many years did, did time in prison for, um, crimes uh not against humanity i almost wanted to say that because it just would have been a funnier thing but not he, he didn't really it's some financial uh it's where that's thing. where it was going that's anyway, where, well, that's where the setup was bringing us we well, all expected that <laughs> yes, exactly um anyway cannon signed both contracts the nfl sued the afl and the afl won and billy cannon went to the houston oilers um a a that was a big big deal um yeah but yeah again three a shot quarters. across the bow if you will Three quarters of their first round. That, uh, that is a remarkable statistic yeah. right there. Yeah. Well, the NFL was just underpaying people. 
Well, of course, but but to to be that to to be that brazen and that successfully brazen yeah. against this established behemoth, regardless of the problems that established behemoth were were having, including underpaying their players, is still a remarkable achievement. Yeah, and, it really you know, is. It, it took guys with money, and it took a broadcasting network, and uh, and some innovative, ballsy thinking. Frankly, yeah, and also um, the NFL just kept thinking if we and, and I saw, actually saw I think George Preston Marshall again, vitriolic racist, that guy, um, saying that you know we have the best players in the world. If we start uh, expanding, it's just going to water down the product, and that's always been the uh, argument. Uh, it wasn't a really good argument because there was a whole lot of talent that the NFL wouldn't even look at or had quoted uh-huh. as to how many of those players were allowed to be on their teams. I will allow everyone to guess what the common denominator of those players was race. Um, but anyway, I also mentioned uh, the yes the the, stu- the stability of the AFL. Um, they had one other major move prior to 1966 when they expanded, and that was that the Dallas Texans left Dallas and uh, left the state of Texas to uh, to the Cowboys um, and moved to Kansas City to become the Kansas City Chiefs. Um, Al Davis, who was uh, working in Oakland, had started out with the with the Rams. Excuse me, with the Chargers, and then moved over to uh, the Raiders. The Raiders. He took over as commissioner of uh, the AFL on April 7th of 1966. Uh, At the same time, behind his back, without consulting him, after they made him commissioner, both Lamar Hunt and Tex Schramm of the Dallas Cowboys were negotiating a merger because at this point, Mark, it all came down to money. And the NFL was bleeding money trying to trying to keep up with the AFL and a lot of the NFL's owners who had been essentially the NFL had been their, um, their revenue source, but they'd been owners for so long. They couldn't keep up with the oil men and the hotel man. They, they didn't have the pockets. They didn't. They were, they were being outspent. Classic. Right. Classic. Story. Anyway, uh, Al Davis resigned actually as commissioner because of it, went back to the Raiders and the league's, made a decision that they would merge in 1970, but they'd start playing a championship game, the game now affectionately known as the Super Bowl. It was the AFL-NFL championship game in 19, after the 1966 season. So the first four Super Bowls, um, Green Bay, Kansas City, Green Bay, Oakland, Jets, Colts, and the one we're going to talk about in a bit, the Vikings and the Chiefs, were actually the AFL-NFL championship yep. games. Um, yep, totally. But there would be a merger in 1970 with Pittsburgh, uh, Cleveland, and Baltimore moving over to the AFC. Follow the money in that as well. Um, and uh, so this Super Bowl four that we're going to talk about, which is important for a couple of different reasons, is also historic because it is the last AFL-NFL right. championship game. All right, so let's jump to the Vikings for a minute. As we mentioned, they started playing in 1961 uh, after the NFL stole a franchise from uh, the uh, – uh, AFL. Their head coach was Norm Van Brocklin, the Dutchman. There he is. Mark, we were talking about it in, uh, when yep. we were putting this together. Norm Van Brocklin, uh, not long retired as a player, was he? He'd won a world championship for the Philadelphia Eagles in 1960, and in the 61 season for the expansion Minnesota Vikings, he was hired as head coach. I mean, how about that? He wins a the equivalent of a Super Bowl, the NFL championship game, yep. and then he becomes a head coach of a brand new franchise. Last, Things were looking good for Van Brocklin in 61. 
But unfortunately, the story doesn't end there. We'll revisit the Dutchman. By the way, last uh, NFL championship that uh, Philadelphia won, Norm Van Brocklin, last starting quarterback to win a championship until Nick Foles. I know. How about that? So that was... uh, Boy, talk about a team that couldn't live in the now. Oh, boy. Um, All right, for his first seven seasons in Minnesota... Not surprisingly, as it is an expansion team, they go 32-59-7, and 8-5-1 and in 64. That's their only winning season. They had talent. There was talent on that football team. Um, mainly uh, a quarterback by the name of Fran Tarkenton. Now, um, Fran Tarkenton was a preacher's kid from Georgia. Norm Van Brocklin was yep. natural enemy of a preacher's kid from Georgia. He was a streetwise right. World War II veteran. Uh, there's a great, uh, there's a great quote. And I don't know if you got to this point in the uh, 69 Viking documentary that I recommended where, uh, Jim Marshall said he could string together expletives and it was really funny (laughs) because I thought it was really funny. Tarkin Jim Marshall thought it was hilarious. Yeah. Jim Marshall didn't care. Uh, Tarkin didn't son of a preacher man did though. Yeah, he did. Uh, and also they clashed. Tarkin didn't clashed with uh, coaches a little bit anyway because of his improvisational nature. And most coaches don't really um, go for that. But Grant didn't either. I mean, there were times uh, when not necessarily that they they clashed, but he kept Tarkenton somewhat restrained and didn't like it when he wasn't restrained. Not unlike Staubach and Landry, frankly. And think of this, too, John. Norm Van Brocklin's a quarterback. Yeah, he just won a championship. Right. So he's he could have suited it up. In his mind, not only can I suit up, but I, I'm at the top of the heap right now. I, What I say to you is truly much more credible than anything you, Fran Tarkenden, have to say to me. Right. Well, uh, Tarkenden wanted wanted to be traded. He didn't care for what was going on. And he was in 1967 in the New York Giants. Oddly, Van Brocklin resigns at, after Tarkenden is, um, is uh, traded. They they traded Tarkenden for, I think, four draft picks, only one of which is important. They did get Ron Yeri, the uh, great offensive lineman out, I believe, USC, uh, who uh, went on to be a Hall of Famer and really anchored that offensive line for a team that would go to four Super Bowls. One of the all-time greats, Ron Yeri. Yep, yep. So there you go. How about that? They got Ron Yeri out of the deal. And yeah, then and then they get end up getting Trent back. And back. Yes, yeah, exactly. So nicely, once once again, the Ali Sherman New York Giants are not really a deep dive we ever need to do. No, um, unless it's the early part of the decade when they went to true. four straight you know championship games. I think lost them all. But that by that time he'd outlasted his usefulness. Ali Sherman had. Oh, by the late sixties, yes, in, in any number of ways, in, um, in, of, in way more ways than just professional. Yes, exactly. Watch the uh, America's Game on Super Bowl two. And uh-huh. uh, you'll get a, you'll get some discussion of Ali Sherman and does not paint him in a very particularly good light. Um, but they bring in to coach the, the man that most of us remember as the Minnesota Viking head coach in their glory years. And that is Bud Grant. They bring Bud Grant in from um, Canada. He was from the upper Midwest. I think he was from uh, he might have been born in Minnesota, but Minnesota, Wisconsin in, in that area. So local guy, uh, more importantly, for the weather you're going to deal with, he had spent. Uh, 10 seasons in Canada and he'd won four gray cup championships in Canada. I don't know if this is something you're going to say, John, we didn't discuss this particular point, but I really thought it was fascinating when they talked about the weather and they yeah. talked about the fact Joe cap is, you know, cause we're going to get to that. That's the quarterback that replaced Tarkinen. He's coming from Canada, but grant won four gray cups in Canada. Well, they're used to the cold and bud grant would say to his team, he said, no one ever gets used to it. Right. Make the decision that you're going to be cold 
and he and he brought up uh, an Eskimo team in a in you know I think oh, about a, the Alaska pipeline. The, the pipe, had, yes, that was guys, great. Guys who were when they were initially doing the pipeline, it was taking a long time because guys would work for a while and then they'd have to go and they'd have to drink coffee and they have to warm up because it's you know a hundred degrees below zero with wind blowing, and all of a sudden they started bringing in these um, Eskimos from that area. Right. And uh, native indigenous Alaskans. Yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm not sure what the Eskimos the is. I'm sure. I'm says sure. That in, I'm sure I'm in trouble. Not looked, I'm sure it's looked down upon. Thank I'm God sure. not more people listen to this podcast because <laughs> I would be cancel cultured the hell out of here. Dane Becker, oh, my gosh. My no, God. Dane Becker would be here so quickly. Two. Uh, <laughs> but uh, uh, yeah, that I, I found that uh, I found that interesting as well, because that was uh the the most interesting part of it to me because it, i had thought kind of maybe the same thing it was like well they're in canada they're kind of used to it and it was like no 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 you, it, everybody's dealing with it it's it's too freaking cold for us to be outside but right. we're here and we have a job to do right so we so can be out here not doing cold it. yeah we can be out here not doing our job or just doing it um because it would suck to be that cold and then lose so we might as well win yeah exactly um now uh there was also a lot of talent on that minnesota team at that point in time um their defensive line is famous uh two out of the four members are in the hall of fame three should be um but the uh, purple people leaders the name of their uh of their defense which by the way is a top 40 hit big hit by sheb woolley who when we talk sports movies mark is in one of the greatest sports movies of all time plays a major role in hoosiers oh really he's this well he's that's the, great he's the like the high school administrator who hires gene hackman who wow. ends up yeah that, that's the great sheb woolley so there you that? go look, look at those cultural touch points well i'll tell you you know it was in line with uh the fearsome foursome for the rams you know with deacon with uh, deacon jones and who we'll see coming up soon Yep. And and I mean, they like that. That's a fearsome force. And that's a fun name. The Purple People Eaters. They, they, didn't they, were, they were not happy with that. But they did uh, not care for it. Yeah. You're saying Carl Eller is the one that should be in the Hall of Fame, right? Uh, no, Paige and Eller are in the Hall of Fame. No, Paige and Marshall are. Page and Marshall. Yes, Eller. My bad. Sorry. Stop okay. that. Reverse it. You're right. I'm, All right. Um, I'm not. I'm, I'm not looking down my notes. I'm not when trying you're to call you out. I'm not no, trying to call no. you out in your deep dive. It's perfectly fine. We're going to talk in a few minutes about how, how you think the Penguins are going to do on their run. Uh, <laughs> but Alan Page, Carl Eller, Jim Marshall, and G- Gary Larson. Uh, and no offense to Gary Larson, who is a great player as well, but uh, Page and Marshall are in the Hall of Fame. Eller should be in the Hall yeah. of Fame. Um, and Jim Marshall, most famous for a play he made against your San Francisco 49ers uh, on a fumble by my Super Bowl quarterback, Billy Kilmer, who was yep. with the Niners at that point, uh, the famous Jim Marshall's running the wrong way. Yep. Uh, though Marshall does point out, and I don't know if you got to this point in it, but Marshall I does did. point out that later he get, he scores the safety because he goes the wrong way, but later he sacks the ball, which uh, is sacks. Um, I guess it's Brody. No, who was it at that point in nineteen? It, it must be Kilmer because he he got the football. He was a tailback. Kilmer was the tailback at that one. He was a tailback. He came and back probably after. Brody. Yeah, probably Brody. Maybe Brody. Uh, and uh, the Vikings picked it up and scored. So he traded seven points for for two. Uh, Marshall. Yeah, he's remembered for you know. Well, he did run the wrong way. Yeah, he did. He did. Come on, he ran the Pretty wrong way vociferously too. He was yeah. into it. Keysar Stadium. Did it look the same on both ends? Was that it? Was it hard to tell one end zone from the other? I, I was never there. I was 10 years old, the, only, the one and only time I went, and it was uh, for a championship game, and uh, 
I don't have those kind of memories, John. That that defense also had uh, Hall of Famer Paul Krause uh, at safety. Uh, there's Krause, uh, drafted by uh, the Washington Redskins, but they were deep into that era where if you were good, you had to go. Uh, so that he ended up in Minnesota after that. So there are the Minnesota Vikings as laid out as we enter into the 69 season. The Kansas City Chiefs, again, were the Texans from 60 to 62, moved to Kansas City in 1963, and their head coach, is one of the most colorful uh, and well-dressed people in the history of sport, and that's the great Hank Stram. Um, Whoops. Hank Stram, yeah. Uh, I, 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 I skipped over the, the Joe Cap uh, story, and, and I would like to apologize. Do you mind if I jump back to that just momentarily? Let's do it. Let's All do right, it. so we jump back because the picture came up, and, and my apologies. Uh, I'll figure a way to blame Mark uh, at some point in this. Uh, all my fault. I've and already received point, a series of texts. Well, it's funny because you mentioned, me. you mentioned Joe Cap, and rightfully so. And then I just got away from the notes because I because I thought, oh, we've talked about Cap, so we can move on. Uh, Joe Cap comes down from Vancouver, where he won great cups and had a great deal of success in Canada. And with the departure of Tarkenton, uh, Cap comes in to play quarterback and he is a, an unconventional player. Mark, I think you would agree. Yes. Um, did not use the laces to throw the football. No, no. And, and you, you look at Joe cap highlights and you can see it's the, a spiral was not high on his priority. No, list. I think it went end to end, but the interesting thing is it generally got there. And also cap looked like unathletic. He looked like a, like a, a loaf of bread in his uniform. He was just like this kind of, rectangular thing he did not look out athletic at all but he was he was great running the football he, he really was, was. And, and he was very tough he could tough. take hit after hit and you know the reason why bud grant loved him so much is that he would figure out a way to win he won four yep. great cups up in uh, canada he he was a quote unquote winner he really was yeah he he was he was a winner and uh though he did say at, later on that if i'd have listened to everything that bud told me to do and done it the way he said, I never would have had any success. My grand was so conservative. And yeah, Cap yeah, was yeah. a little bit like Tarkenden. He was nowhere near the the thrower of the football Tarkenden was, but he was a guy who was not afraid to pull uh to pull the ball down and run and didn't have you know not maybe not as quick as the smaller Tarkenton, but he was tough and uh you know he, he had a little shake and bake from time to time. So he was he was a difficult uh he was a difficult guy to defense. Uh, Joe Cap. So there we go. We jump back to Joe Cap. Now we can jump back ahead to Hank Stram. My apologies for going off. There's there's the great Hank Stram, whose father was, was a haberdasher, so that's why he was so well dressed all the time. Hank Stram, uh-huh. Mark, all the time. Uh, yeah. Went to high school in Gary, Indiana. Lou Wallace High School, in Gary, Indiana. Who is Lou Wallace? Civil War I general. Believe, yeah, and I believe he he um, wrote wrote a book or two. He did uh, write a book or two, uh, the two we no one remembers, but the one <laughs> that we do is Ben-Hur. How about that? And I only bring it up because, Mark, yeah. weren't you involved? Weren't you Weren't you an Oral Hershiser, the producers of a musical <laughs> version of Ben-Hur, which delighted audiences for hours at, uh, for at days. Orange County Civic Center? Yes, a multi-million dollar project. I was not a co-producer. I wish I wish I would have been to tell you the truth. I think Maybe. things, things may have been different. Things may have been different. Oh, you would have made some changes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Kidding me? Yeah, I would have trusted the people who actually knew what they were doing. But um, 
Yeah, it was a musical based on Ben Hearn. I played uh, Sheik Ilderim. So culturally appropriating uh, a Sheik. Yeah. And uh, had a song. You know, I was. I saw it. It was a big. It was a big deal, and it and it it was a spectacularly funded event. Which mm-hmm. you know, I think Earl Hershiser threw two million dollars into this thing. Two million dollars, and you know, it 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 was going to go to Broadway. Seriously, on on my way to Broadway in a big character part. <laughs> Durka Durka. <laughs> Durka Durka. It was a total Durka, Durka, Durka time. <laughs> and uh, yeah, and uh, man, spectacularly crashed like. You know, with all due respect to the families who are maybe still sad about this, it was worse than the Hindenburg. It's often called the new Coke of theater. <laughs> you know, in in in, in yeah, some terms. big investment and a spectacular fail. Okay, all 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 comedy. And I'm, I'm connected to Hank Stram somehow. There you are, and Lou Wallace. Um, uh, Hank Stram had never been a head coach up to this point in time. He was an assistant at the University of Miami when he. Uh, when he was uh, hired, he had also been a, an assistant at Notre Dame and um, SMU. And I, I have those out of order, and I'll tell you the SMU one in a minute. But they're uh, most importantly at Purdue, where he uh, helped recruit Len Dawson, who will come into our story um, here in just a, a few minutes. And there's Len at Purdue, very successful big, I think two time uh, Big Ten, all Big Ten at Purdue, and would end up as the quarterback for these Kansas City Chiefs in 69. Uh, the reason, and sorry that I said that out of order, but when he was an assistant coach at SMU, and this is part of the reason that he got the job at uh, Kansas City after it was turned down by a couple of other coaches I'll mention in a moment, was because a bench player on that SMU team was uh, Lamar Hunt, the owner of the Dallas Texans slash. Kansas City Chiefs. But Hunt had actually offered the job to both a Bud Wilkinson, who was coaching at uh, Oklahoma, which had been the team of the 50s by far in college football. They were one of the great dynasties of all time. And a New York Giants assistant called Tom Landry, who would end up as the head coach of the NFL team in Dallas. Uh, Both of them turned it down. And so Hank Stram takes the gig. Um, Stram's nickname was The Mentor. Mark, everybody called him the mentor. He was a great innovator, eye formation, the stacked defense, and all of these things, um, pre-snap uh, motion, all kinds of stuff that you did not see, uh, not only in the NFL, but early on in the AFL as well. I mean, he was as innovative a coach as there ever was. And he... And could predict a play when he became a broadcaster. He could predict a play better than anyone I've ever seen before or since. Yeah. Yeah. He was, he was, yeah, he was, he was amazing. Really knew the game. And we talked about him being a judge. He was a great judge of talent. He had some great scouts too. We're going to talk about one of those in a minute, but I mean, you think about the hall of famers. I mentioned Len Dawson, Bobby Bell, Buck Buchanan, Curly Culp, Willie Lanier, Jan Stenerud, Emmett Thomas, Johnny Robinson, every one of those guys is in the Hall of Fame. And that is remarkable. It it, it really is. Um, just he Stram in the in the epilogue to this, we'll talk about how Stram gets to the Pro Football Hall of Fame years behind Bud Grant, um, years after Bud Grant got there. And I, I think that's a bit unfair. I think I think Hank Stram still uh, was, um, if not uh, 
openly campaigned against, I think there was still some feeling that the AFL success didn't count. Yeah. You know, maybe maybe by the time the merger came along. But, uh, you know, the Kansas City team that won, the Dallas Texan team that won an AFL championship and that first Kansas City team, uh, you know, they, 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 yeah, he wins in 69, uh, but that's a Minnesota team. Maybe they're a bit of an anomaly. Um, so there were a lot of reasons, uh, none of which I think were justified in keeping Hank Stram out of the Hall of Fame as long as they did. I mentioned that he had a, a great scouting staff, and he did. One of the most important was a guy by the name of Lloyd Wells. Now, one of the things about the AFL, Mark, is it gave a great deal more opportunity to players from historically back black colleges and universities. I mentioned some of the Buck Buchanan, Bobby Bell, Willie Lanier, Emma Thomas, Ode the Great Otis Taylor, who we'll talk about a little bit later. Um, and these were guys who were not, um, and there's Otis, who were not uh, recruited to, to play in the National Football League because still at this time, there were unspoken limits to how many players you could have of color on an NFL team. And I thought one of the most interesting things about it is it was either two, four, six, eight. You could never have an uneven number. And you know why, Mark? Lockers or something like that? So they couldn't room together. Gotcha. They wouldn't room uh, African-American players with white players. Well, that that all went out the window in the... uh, When did that change? Like 94, 95? Well, depending on the team, maybe. Uh, but uh, we'll we'll jump back into uh, into that in a moment. I do want to mention about Lloyd Wells that we brought up. In addition to his work as a scout with the Chiefs, he started an East West All Star game in Houston uh, for high school players of color, which started his real pipeline to the HBCUs and really helped him when it came to scouting for the Chiefs. He also helped integrate the Houston Cougars basketball team. He got Don Chaney and the great. Elvin Hayes, there's the big E uh, on that team. He also was instrumental in um, adding uh, Don Latin to the uh, Texas Western team that uh, started five African-Americans and beat Adolph Rupp. Vitriolic racist. Uh, Lily White, Kentucky team. Lily. Lily White. They were pale. A couple of guys were clear. (laughs) They could not be whiter. No, Pat Riley among players on that team. That's uh, fun. That, on that, that 66 that's a good one. Yep. So, and also so Lloyd Lloyd was hugely responsible for the influx of, of African-American talent into the AFL, essentially. He, he just, yeah, he had really good uh, relationships with all of these guys in uh, the uh, like coaches in HBCUs. And he had started this all-star game in Houston where yeah. he brought all the best uh, players of color. So he was kind of a conduit for everybody. Um, just so good. Also, the famous uh, Otis Taylor uh, story is that it was his job to keep Otis Taylor, uh, to get him away from the NFL. And the NFL had Otis Taylor locked in a hotel room, essentially. Uh, they were going to sign him to a contract. Um, and Lloyd Wells was able to break him out through a window. Uh, he, first of all, he talked his way in the, initially by saying he was a writer for Ebony Magazine and he was just doing a story on uh on uh, Taylor. And then once he was found out and he was kicked out, he was able to contact Taylor again somehow. And he got him to crawl out a window and took him somewhere and signed him to, to the chiefs. That is a great story. Isn't it though? <clears throat> that is, Lloyd Wells. There was a lot of that. There was a lot of that. 
And it, sometimes the AFL won and sometimes the NFL won, but that's well, why they really had to merge. Three out of four times the AFL was winning, at least sure. at the top. On the, I mean, we'll give the NFL credit. Well, on their side, it was, I think it was Tommy Novus out of Texas, the great linebacker who played for the Atlanta Falcons. That he was kind of stolen from the AFL in, in sort of the same way. Um, remarkable. Yes. Also, and just to finish up with Lloyd Wells, he uh, he ended up as part of Muhammad Ali's entourage in the 70s. And so if you watch some classic fights, you will see Lloyd Wells. Was he in Zaire? I think he was. Yeah. I mean, I think he was there from like, Damn. yeah, from the early 70s. What was the Zaire fight? 74? 74, I think. Yeah. Yeah. 74. Okay. Yeah, so Lloyd Wells, uh, and you see him in that great video of the the mic'd up Hank Stram in Super Bowl Four. You see Lloyd in the background uh, any number of times. Uh, so there you go. There's the Kansas City Chief background. Now let's jump to the '69 season, which is really what we were we're here to talk about. Uh, the '69. Well, well, again, the title is the road. Yes, we're talking about the road to Super Bowl Four. So it's 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 been a good show. We've talked about the road. All right, it's more about the road, and I, and I'm and I promise everybody, I'm trying to get through it quicker, so it's not like a Merchant Ivory film, and and not even a you know generally a bad Merchant Ivory film like Jefferson in Paris or and again crap. again a twenty five to thirty year old <laughs> reference. <laughs> Are either of them alive now, Merchant or I, Ivory? I don't, I don't I think, know. I, I, I think James Ivory and Stephen Merchant, I think. Ishmael Merchant. Oh. Ishmael Merchant and uh, call me Ishmael Merchant. And, and James Ivory. And James Ivory. Absolutely correct. All right. So in 68, uh, didn't take Bud Grant long for the turnaround. Uh, took the job in 67. 68, he has the team in the playoffs. And by 69, he posts the best record in the National Football League. Uh, 12 and 2 record. They this team was dominant. Yeah. It's so funny because every year it seems like from like 1961 on every t- team that won the NFL championship was the best team in the history of the NFL. I think the NFL might've been kidding themselves there, but this team was pretty damn good. Scored 379 points, only gave up 133 points. Both first in the NFL, right? They were first in offense, first in defense. Yeah. In a 14 game season, they scored 50 or more points in three games. They won 12 straight. They lost their first and last game of the season. That was the longest streak since 1934. Uh, They only gave up more than 14 points uh, once, only once, in the game one loss to Fran Tarkenden and the New York Giants. They lost by one point, by the way, on a last second. You know, it was a comeback by Tarkenden. They had that game under control. They gave up 14 points in the fourth quarter. Right. That defense had something to prove after that. Uh, and their only other loss was their final game of the season. And guess who they lost to? 49ers. Nope. Our <laughs> the... old friend Norm Van Brocklin's Atlanta Falcons. Oh, my gosh. That's right. Yep. Van Brocklin. Yep. So this was a dominant, dominant team. Uh, if you watch the, the history of, the, of that year, I mean, they just they beat the crap out of people. They, they could roll... win high scoring, yeah. low scoring didn't matter. And I think, John, across the season, you know, they scored a hundred, they allowed 130 points, right? In a 14 game season. points, yes. That's under 10 a game. Right, right. Under 10. It's remarkable. And they gave up they 24 in the first game. Yes. Uh, that was smothering defense and a very high power offense. Yeah. And they lost that last game. Now they had already clinched in that last game to Atlanta. They lost 10 to exactly. three. And, you know, they were playing it really close to the best. Now let's jump to the Chiefs. They were 11 and three in the regular season. Two of those losses to the Oakland Raiders, who remember uh, they were only two years removed from being AFL champions. 
Um, points for 359, only 177 points given up by that defense. So they're only given up around, what, 11.75 points per game or something? Right. I believe less than 12 points a game. Um, so they're pretty damn good on both sides of the football as well. A um, little bit rockier road for them. They started 2-0 and and lost Lenny Dawson to a knee injury. Their backup quarterback, Jackie Lee, there's Jackie. Uh, he, looks, um, he looks overwhelmed in that picture. If you're watching on, uh, if you're listening to the podcast, the picture of Jackie Lee sort of indicates that he's afraid. Okay. I'm going to say this about Jackie Lee. One of only 20 men to play every AFL season from 1960 to 1969. He started with Houston. He backed up and split time with George Blanda. And then he ended up in Kansas City. And oh my gosh, look at this. Here's his chance in his last season in the AFL. He's going to be the starting quarterback for the Kansas City Chiefs. And he went down with a broken ankle in that week three uh, game, and uh, which was a loss to Cincinnati. Uh, 24 to 19, two co-quarterbacks played for that Cincinnati team, Mark. Greg Cook, who would go down with an injury, and his injury would lead to the West Coast offense because the offensive coordinator at that point in time for Cincinnati was Bill Walsh. And uh, the other quarterback that Greg Cook split, split time with, Mark, was? A uh, Bill Walsh protege as well, uh, Sam Weish, who was a quarterback for the Bengals, later became an assistant coach for that Bill Walsh 49er team and then a coach of uh, – of his own and got his team to the Super Bowl. But yeah, Sam Weish, and you're right about Greg Cook. Greg Cook was this, this exceptional, he was a great talent. talent, could run, had a gun. And uh, once they didn't have that, uh, that's when Bill Walsh decided to invent an offense with Sid Gilliam's help. Uh, and uh, I think it's Gilman influence. Thank you. Sid Gilman and Paul Brown's influence, both of their influences. Yeah but really made up an offense that you could dink and dunk your way down the field. You, well, didn't maybe, to, you didn't have to have a big arm. Maybe the two coaches who have the most effect on the game still that were historic coaches in the NFL, all apologies to George Hallis and Vince Lombardi, uh, Paul Brown and Sid Gilliam. Gilman. Now, now you got me doing it. I know. Uh, it's because of Jim Gilliam and my deep dive with the Dodgers. And John Gilliam, the quarterback. Anyway, plenty of Gilliams. Yes, but, uh, we're we're – we're Gilliam holes right now. We, we really are. We're digging uh, Gilliam holes. <laughs> we're digging Gilliam holes. Um, now for the Chiefs, again, now they've lost their starting quarterback. They're, they've lost their uh, second string quarterback. They have a second year player named Mike Livingston who comes in. And Mike Livingston, who ends up uh, putting together a pretty decent career as a sometime starter and backup in the NFL. Actually, his... His glory was this year. They won five straight with Mike Livingston at quarterback. And mm-hmm. and basically, you know, what everybody said about Mike is that he knew what he knew and he knew what his limitations were. And he knew he couldn't get that team beat with that defense and the talent they had, both running the football and uh, catching the football. If he could just not make mistakes, he didn't. They won five straight. That's fun. That's my that's my uh, philosophy playing ping pong against much more skilled players. Just return it. Just return it. Don't try and put spin on it. Don't try and do right. a power shot. No just, English. No, no, no. Just return it. Just you you let them make the mistake. That's that was Mike Livingston's uh, philosophy. Yep. And, and worked well for Livingston. 5-0. and oh. All right. We've got both of our teams to the postseason now. Let's talk about what help happened in the postseason, starting with the Vikings, who we talked about weather before. So for the Vikings, getting home field advantage uh, was a big, big, big deal. And it certainly paid off for them uh, in the uh in in the playoffs uh starting out against southern california's own los angeles rams 
Um, coached by George Allen, notoriously bad in postseason, uh, not a losing record in the regular season as a head coach, a great head coach. But, Mark, this is your era in L.A. You know about George Allen being a head coach of the, of, of the Rams. They were a very, very good football team, and they just would not. They had no success in the playoffs. No, they didn't. And actually, when Chuck Knox took over, too, they had more success, but they still couldn't get to the big one. But I think George Allen had maybe nine playoff games. I think one, two. I think he's two and seven. Yeah, he won two over Green Bay and uh, Dallas the same year, 1972. There's the only two. And the only two. He lost one. He lost as a, a divisional playoff in Washington uh, with Washington in Minnesota as well. And he's going to lose this game. It's 11 degrees at kickoff. Um, Minnesota loses the turnover battle in this uh, game. The Rams on four first half possessions scored three times, two of them on Roman Gabriel uh, touchdown passes. They led 17-7 at the half. The most uh, spectacular thing about this, Mark, is they scored in the first quarter. The only touchdown scored against that Minnesota defense all year in the first quarter. Wow. Interesting. And the the utter dominance of that team is just ridiculous. But, the, but they had first game jitters a little bit. They did have like. first game jitters, and it also should be pointed out that defensively, you mentioned it before, that was a hell of a uh, Rams defense. Yeah, it was a it was that was a great Rams team. You know, yeah. they had to deal with the Packers in the mid sixties. They had to deal with you know the Colts and the Vikings in the late sixties. And they were always right there. That was a great football team that just couldn't quite, you know. Yeah, they reminded home. me of what, like, from the 70s, maybe it's like the Houston Oilers. Um, someone always competitive. Someone, all, you know, kind of every now and then get into the championship game. Right. A, a team that never went away, but never quite could. Yeah, never could take the next step. And, yeah, the Houston uh, Oilers were a very good team. But, they, had, you know, there's, there's Oakland, there's Pittsburgh, there's Miami. Miami. Right. So. Yeah. So b- bad time to be them. Uh, the Vikings outscore <laughs> their, their timing. Owned by Bud Adams in the era we're talking. To quote Spinal Tap, they fucked up the timing. I got no timing. Um, they're outscored 16-3 to in the second half. Um, Joe Cap running the football quite a bit. They, they, they started rolling him out and making the fearsome foursome chase him and basically just wore them down. Um, I bring it up. They end up winning the game 23 to 20 because halftime adjustments were a big reason why they won this game. A couple of games later, they're not going to make any halftime adjustments and it's going to cost them. Um, In the NFL championship game, eight degrees versus Cleveland. So, or as they call it in Minnesota springtime. Um, And to your point earlier, the Cleveland Browns had lost the NFL championship game the year before 34 to nothing. Minnesota sort of scored four minutes into the game. Touchdown pass to Gene Washington. And there's Gene Washington. Mark. Yeah. For those of you listening, Gene Washington. we have a we have I a, love Gene Washington. We have a photo and a, and a football card of Gene Washington with the 49ers, who is not yeah, great. The Gene Washington that we're talking about. Excuse it me? is a different Gene Washington. So nice. Nice job slipping in. I, I told you I'd get you in there, so I brought up the Jim Marshall wrong way, but it wasn't enough. It's, no, it's never enough. Give Mark an inch. It's never enough. He'll take a mile. Yes. Uh, I'll take the length of a rope. <laughs> in any case, the other Gene Washington and the San Francisco talk is now making the crawl. Nice job, Jeff. Uh, the other Gene Washington catch it four minutes in, touchdown pass. Uh, Cleveland turns the ball over three times, um, and the Vikings win 27-7, to and in their ninth year of existence. 
the Minnesota Vikings are in the Super Bowl. Still fastest expansion team, right? No, Carolina. I don't Car- think that was nine years, though. Or what? Oh, you're right. Well, 60, 61, 69. And 95 to 03. So it might have been eight years. We should. I probably should have checked this ahead of time. I, I think it's actually the same amount of time. It's in their ninth year. Carolina in was in their ninth Interesting. year. Okay. Well, there you go. But uh, yeah, so that's, you know, that, that that's pretty remarkable, really. And when, then when you look at where they were under Van Brocklin and what Bud Grant was able to do. Very quickly, um, too. He got there in 67, like you said. And by yeah, and in 68, they're in the playoffs. Yeah. And 69, now, they're in the Super Bowl. He, they benefited because he was in the same division as the Bears in their worst period ever. The Detroit Lions in their worst period ever, which means uh, any year of the NFL starting. Actually, in the Lions were relatively competitive. No, they were pretty good. Actually. Turns out, but just relatively competitive. Right, right. On any given Sunday, they could beat you, but they weren't going anywhere beyond that. And I don't think they made the playoffs. And I think they snuck in in 70, but, you know, maybe. Yeah. Greg Landry. Remember him? Greg Landry. I do very much. Yeah. 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 Uh, <laughs> way off. Let's talk about the 1970 Detroit Lions. Let's. But also, but the point I was going to make is they also caught the Green Bay Packers at right. the end of the dynasty. It's true. So they, they were fortunate with their, you know, grouping. Yep. By the way, uh, the AFL wanted to put a team in Milwaukee and, uh, Vince Lombardi put a stop to that. Because, you know, they played in County Stadium. Right. And basically, he signed an uh, extended lease to play in County Stadium, which I believe they did well into the early 90s, if I'm oh, not correct. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They split time. Yeah, which is so weird when you think Lambeau is this iconic venue place. of all venues and dumpy old County Stadium in Milwaukee that the last time Seriously. we... The only other time it's ever mentioned is when the Braves moved there and left Boston and they... Two million people came to see baseball games, and it was the greatest number ever. And then it's never, ever mentioned again until Vince Lombardi signs this thing, you know, all these and years And then later. as a footnote, you know, to, yeah. to their scheduling, you know, you, you see these asterisks, Milwaukee. What? What's that? I was always so confused with that. All right. So let's jump into Kansas City's postseason. Uh, they open up uh, against the defending AFL champion, New York Jets, and our good friend Joe Namath, who Mark disparaged earlier in the show as the worst Hall of Fame quarterback. <laughs> I, did. I did. Most overrated. Most 30, overrated. 33 degrees. I think that's you may not be wrong. I have to be exactly, honest. Um, exactly. 33 degrees swirling winds at Shea it was a terrible place to play in in wintertime when the wind blew. If you're watching, you can see it's shaped like a bowl. The wind would blow in and basically just swirl around. It just created a vortex so that from one play to the next, Namath said in an interview I saw from one play to the next, you didn't know. You know, when you broke the huddle, the wind could be at your back. And by the time you snapped the ball, it was blowing in your face. So I think they designed it that way because they knew eventually Willie Mays would come back to New York and they wanted to make him feel at home. <laughs> it all comes down to Mays just being screwed, doesn't it? I mean, you know, you could really distill a lot of the problems in this country to the Dallas, just to the city of Dallas. Yeah. And to people trying to screw Willie Mays. I mean, come on, yeah, that, that'll be the, that should be the next deep dive. <laughs> All of our problems come down to these, these things. It was six to three in the fourth quarter, a six to three Kansas city lead. And the, uh, the most important drive of the game really was uh, New York drove down and had first and goal because of a, of, of a penalty call 
on the one yard line on the Kansas City one yard line and the uh, the uh, Viking, excuse me, the, the Chiefs defense held them to a field goal. Um, wow. On that. Yeah. Yeah. Because that would have won the football game. Uh, in wow. the meantime, uh, Otis Taylor is on the sidelines. We mentioned Otis earlier. And he's drawing up a play on the ground for Len Dawson and saying, here's, you know, here's what we need to do. Da, 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 da. And uh, he makes a catch on the sidelines. And I ask you, go back and look at the film. He's out of bounds. If there's any replay, this doesn't happen. And maybe we have a New York Jet or Oakland Raider Minnesota Vikings Super Bowl, an Oakland Raider Viking Super Bowl seven years too soon. Um, it goes to your point, John, about how franchises and the people that support them are truly punished. There's a price to pay. <clears throat> we talked about the Miami Dolphins. Those fans will never see a championship again. We talked like about 20, 27 championships of the Yankees. And those fans me straight to hell. Lake of fire to the lake of fire. Yep. And think about the jets. They yep. were a half an inch from winning that game on the goal line. They were robbed uh, of that touchdown drive. Yeah, he, because you, of, did you see the video of it? Yes. The, yes. He's out of bounds. And they were that close. And look at what's happened to the Jets since mm -hmm. to, to pay for what happened, to pay to be part of an iconic moment yep. that transcends the game and perhaps even American culture and, or defines American culture at some sure point. Sure does. And uh, there's just a price to pay. There is. There is. You can't and, have everything. It started the very next year. And, you know, where would you put it? <laughs> you can't have everything. Where would you put it? It's one of my favorite Stephen Wright lines. <clears throat> you can't have everything. Where would you put it? Almost as good as I put instant coffee in a microwave oven. Went backwards in time. <laughs> he had some doozies. I always mentioned, and I'm going to go off track and tell it here. here Gator growl. Gator growl. <laughs> I know because it's what we do. Gator <laughs> growl. Stephen, Stephen Wright comes out, does the opening joke. And they're, you know, it's Gator growl. There are 80,000 people in Florida field and 79,000. 830 didn't get the joke. And I was among the 170 that did. Um, but he comes on stage. And course, ladies and gentlemen, Stephen Wright. So, two babies born next to each other in a hospital, placed into bassinets next to each other by a turn of fate as 80-year-old dying men are placed in the same hotel room next to each other, never having met in between. And one turns to the other and says, so what do you think? <laughs> I think that joke is damn near perfect. And people around me, I'm laughing, and people around me are just looking at me, you know, like I'm a Democrat in Houston. It's just like, what in hell is you're, with You're this a Democrat guy? in Gainesville. Might as well be the same thing. Well, no, actually, blue blue city in a in a red that state. That's true. Yeah. Good call. College, it's college town. It people is a college town. People are educated. It's college town. <laughs> All right, moving on. <laughs> All right, what's next? Uh, the AFL championship game, and it's, it is it is fitting that the last game in the American Football League is between the best rivalry in the AFL, the Chiefs and the Raiders. Um, those games were war. Yeah, yeah, um, legendary. You know, you had the Chiefs, which, you know, th those guys had to wear houndstooth uh, jackets and black slacks. And it, it, the, the jackets had a Kansas City logo and they all wore ties and they all look great. And the Raiders were, you know, just win, baby, look like a biker gang uh, 
at any point in time, but it was an amazing rivalry. But Mark, it was a bit hammer and nail at this point because the Chiefs had lost two of the three games that they lost that year to the Raiders, and they'd lost seven of eight to the Raiders in that period of time. So they had won the war occasionally because they were in Super Bowl one, yep. the Chiefs, yep. and they, you know, would eventually get here and had had success in between. But uh, they I think, lost. They basically lost all the battles. I think. Uh, I think really between the Super Bowl one, uh, the, the next season, which was sixty seven, Super Bowl one sixty six season sixty seven to this point in time, they lost all but one game that they played them. See, that's remarkable. Yeah, that's remarkable. It really is. Um, the uh, the Raiders, by the way, had come off beating uh, Houston, um, who one of the best teams in the um, in the AFL. They won, I believe, the first AFL championship game. Uh, I think so. Yeah. Boy, talk a team that's a loss to history is those early Houston Oilers teams, which had some great players, um, but they were a shell of themselves. Oakland had beat them fifty six to seven the week before. Uh, the game is seven to seven at the half. It's at um, Arrowhead, right? Yep. It's at, uh, no, it's at um, Oakland Alameda College. Oh, that's right. Oakland Alameda. We just saw it. Yeah. How about that? uh, Coliseum. Um, Seven to seven at the half. Uh, Kansas City uh, scored uh, with 324 left in the uh, the, uh, third. They drove 75 yards and scored. They uh, shut out the... Raiders, excuse me. I'm, just, I'm checking my notes. I want to make sure that I get this in order so we get the right pictures up. Um, score 324 left in the third quarter to uh, to make it 14 to seven. They shut out the Raiders for the rest of the game because again, great uh, halftime adjustments uh, by Kansas City, which they were always known for. And uh, they knocked Daryl Lamonica out of the game, the Mad Bomber. George Blanda, who I believe was on those Houston teams that won. Uh, I think the, you're right. The championship in 1960 um, comes into the game. At this point, how old is Blanda? 174. 174 the day before we send out. No, I mean, jo- George Blanda was ancient. I mean, just when I started really checking into the NFL, which was. He was about 43 at this point, wasn't he? He's about Rough, 43 years old. Roughly. Yeah. And so in the 1970 season, he's 44 and not only kicking game winning field goals for the Oakland Raiders, but coming in. And replacing LaMonica yeah. and winning games as a quarterback as well. Oh, it was either 71 or 72, I think, too, where he had like a really cool, great run. Um, I think it was 70, but it could have was been it 70. It might have been 70. I, th- I think it was, and it was in a remarkable run as a quarterback and as a place kicker at 44, whatever yeah. it was. Anyway, and I'm sorry I burgered that at the end. What ends up happening is Kansas City beats Oakland 17-7. Uh, to 7. They should have left a few of those points that from the 56-7 to 7 beating of Houston. And uh, let them hang around for this game. So in the last game in the American Football League, after losing seven of eight to that season, Kansas City finally defeats Oakland. And it's it's just a great cap to what yeah. is a remarkable David and Goliath story when it comes to uh, the AFL and the NFL. Now, uh, mitigated somewhat by the fact that uh, uh, David owned a small country, uh, monetarily speaking, and Goliath... Yeah. You know, it's all hat, no cattle in a lot of respects. Yes. It was Goliath. So that brings us to we've kind of we've traveled the road, Mark. Can we just move on and talk about Monday's show? Or you know, I, I right. think we should talk about the game. Let's John. dive into Super Bowl four, shall we? 
January 11th, 1970. You remember? Uh, you remember this one at all? I don't. I don't. don't. No memory of it. Um, Tulane Stadium in uh, New Orleans. First Super Bowl in New Orleans. Uh, the first two had been in uh, the first one in Los Angeles and two and three in Miami. This is the first New Orleans Super Bowl it becoming they, regular. It would be. Yeah. And the Tulane, Tulane, too. Right. Before the Superdome was built, they had a few. Yeah, they, they did. They did. Uh, I, they have one more. I know. And I think of the Superdome was supposed to have been finished and wasn't uh, for the next one. And it was either one of the because there were a couple of weirdo stadium things when you look because most Super Bowls, there's like a handful of stadiums that they've all been held in. And uh, but there are two two lanes and a rice stadium. And I can okay. never remember if rice in Houston. And I don't know why the Astrodome was not. So I think the other Tulane was was the the Vikings were back in Tulane. They played the Steelers, I believe. Yeah, it was either that one. And then the Miami, Minnesota one, I think, might have been Rice Stadium. Um, Gosh. Yeah. See, all Minnesota needed was a normal Super Bowl stadium to play in. Yeah. Yeah, I think Tulane wasn't that also uh, Miami and Dallas, Super Bowl six Because that was an outdoor dumpy stadium, if I remember the video. That's the first Super Bowl I remember. It was an outdoor dumpy game as well. Yeah, that was was about as bad as this one that we're about to talk about. Um, Maybe a little less entertaining, quite frankly. I would say so. Um, Anyway, ticket prices were $15. Wouldn't that be nice? Uh, It was, as I said earlier, the last AFL-NFL championship game. There had been a massive amount of rain before the game. Our game time temperature was 55 degrees, but it was a chilly 55 degrees because it was damp. The field was very damp. And if you watch the video of it, the field just looks horrible. Just looks, looks like my lawn right now just garbage uh some interesting fun notes um cbs had the game at that point as they were uh jumping back and forth at that point i think it was cbs nbc cbs nbc for a while until they started bidding on them the first game was televised by both cbs and nbc but your announcers were the great jack right. and pat Summerall when he was a color announcer and not a play-by-play guy yeah um do you that? know do you know who the sideline reporters were I do not, Johnny. Frank Gifford and Jack Whitaker. Wow. Yep. Frank Gifford had the Kansas City locker room, and Jack Whitaker had the uh, the Minnesota locker room. Um, the, now the most interesting part of this entire Super Bowl, in my mind, two most interesting things are the National Anthem and the Halftime Show. The National Anthem was played on trumpet by Doc Severinsen, there's the great Doc Severinsen, probably gacked to the gills. Um, and uh, the, the national anthem itself was read as the poem that it was written, Mark. I mean, there you were. It was you know, recited. That's right. As, a, you know, strict constructionalists probably enjoy this uh, by actor Pat O'Brien. Yeah. So he would read the national O oh, say, can you see? <laughs> Oh, say, can you see by the dawn? Just, it's bizarre. I, I it recommend you watch the damn thing. Beyond surreal. I it, don't think anyone would kneel for that because they would be too much in in shock Yeah, watching it. They'd be just standing with their mouths agape. And they'd forget to kneel. Wow. Didn't Pat O'Brien play uh, Newt Rockney and Newt Rockney All-American? 
with Ronald Reagan. Yeah. See, there you go. Yeah, so there's another Notre There's way too much Notre Dame in this show already, so let's move on. Uh, also memorable, if you watch the America's Game or the NFL video on it, is one of the parts of the uh, prior to the game, they had a <laughs> hot air balloon with a Viking in it uh, that was supposed to, you know, rise from the field as if... Yeah. You know, Phoenix from the ashes or whatever. There, was there a tragedy that happened? Uh, no, we couldn't get it airborne and basically just dragged across the field and then ended up throwing oh, right. the, the, the gondolier, whatever the thing hangs underneath a hot air balloon. Because if you ride one of those, you're a moron in my mind. Um, and just <laughs> slammed him into the bleachers. The people scattering. It's like Le Mans in 55. And if you don't know that. No, that's rough. That's right. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Also, this game really famous more more than anything famous for Hank Stram being wired for sound. And I saw an interview with Steve Sable and uh, Stram, you know, his dad, Ed Sable, started NFL films and approached Stram and thought he would be, you know, be fun to. Uh, to Mike him because Stram was a very colorful figure and said a lot of fun stuff. And uh, and Stram basically said, uh, yeah, how much are you going to pay me? And uh, he's like, uh, he, he said, what are you coin of the realm? It's the coin of the what's what's the coin of the realm? And uh, I guess Ed Sable's like, what are you talking about? He goes, you know, <laughs> Stram wants money. Stram wants money. Uh, and uh, I think he started with like a hundred bucks and Stram's like, I wouldn't cover two weeks worth of my dry cleaning. So they ended up paying him a thousand dollars to get mic'd for that game. And a thousand dollars, a thousand nineteen early nineteen seventy dollars is yeah. worth what now? Uh, two point seven million. <laughs> so that's a pretty good day's yeah. work. Yeah, just 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 to be mic'd, you Three know, hours of work. Yeah, just just to do what you normally do. You're not doing right. anything extra. Right. Great story by Lynn Dawson, uh, where he talks about the fact that um, he, nobody on the team knew. Sram didn't tell anybody he was mic'd. Uh-huh. Which is odd, because given what you see from Mike's back then, I'm surprised he didn't have to wear a helmet with like a backpack. Yeah, because, uh, you know, the lobs were not tiny little things like they are now. Um, and but, they weren't uh, wireless, so he had a wire sticking out of them. So at some point, someone must have thought, I guess they weren't paying very much attention. But uh, Dawson said he'd come to the sidelines. And normally when he'd come to the sidelines, uh, Stram would say to him, uh, you know, uh, uh, Lenny, what do you what do you thinking here? What 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 do you have on, in mind? What are you what are you looking to do? Because back then, quarterbacks called all their own plays, the vast majority of them. And um, <laughs> Dawson said, you know, this time he'd come to the sidelines and and uh, and Stram would be like, I think run this. You should run this. And he's like, wow, this is really he must be so uptight. He's like telling me what to run. And then he realized later it's being taped. So he's going to look like a genius. Right. Um, when it uh, when the film came out. So and he did. They didn't find out. The Chiefs did not know. No one told them until they actually saw the film of the game months wow. and months later. And it was March iconic. or April. It yeah. is iconic. Oh, it's great. We'll talk it's, a little bit about it's it. It's the memory of Super Bowl four, at right. least for most people. I and think. thank God they did, because otherwise there ain't much memorable about the damn Walking thing. up and down the side. Should point this out about Len Dawson that we mentioned as well. Uh, Lenny Dawson, who had, I think come into the NFL in 1957 and had beat around. Uh, this was a, a triumph for him this year, uh, Dawson, who will end up being the MVP of the Super Bowl. Um, but he had had a rough year. I'd mentioned the injury, which kept him out for six games during the season. His father passed away in the middle of the season. And then a gambling scandal came out the week of the Super Bowl. I think four days from the kick from this from the game that he was implicated in some sort of gambling scandal. Now, the whole turn thing turned out to be nothing, but it took him a couple of days to get it um, to get it resolved. 
and uh, just put a little bit of extra stress on uh, on Dawson. There are a lot of conspiracy theories as to how this story came out, when it came out. Right. And was it gamblers themselves putting Dawson's name out there? Uh because it was a guy that he was familiar with, but he'd only had a couple of conversations with who turned out to be a gambler. And was this just some way to, for gamblers to get an edge on the game? But uh, Dawson uh, hadn't done anything wrong. Len Dawson generally considered one of the really good guys in, in the history of the NFL. But uh, a tough season, tough season for, for Len Dawson. Uh, it wouldn't be a tough game for, for Len Dawson. Was not. Was not a tough game. All right. So let's jump into this here. In the first quarter, and I watched this game in its entirety on a black and white kinescope that, I've, as I told you, somebody restored. So it was really interesting to watch. And Vikings moving the football. Actually, both teams early moving the football well, but not, you know, it was a bend-don't-break situation, which is interesting giving both of these defenses were essentially, we're just going to stop you defenses. They weren't really bend-don't-break defenses. Uh, Vikings were able to move the ball uh, on the first drive, but uh, they stalled and had to punt. The Chiefs were able to drive on, the, uh, uh, were able to get a little bit of a drive together, I think a total of 42 yards. Uh, but they had to settle for a 48-yard field goal attempt by Jan Stenerud, the Hall of Fame kicker, still the only kicker, right, in the Hall of Fame. Has anybody else gotten in since? I don't know, but Vinatieri will. He will. Yeah, there's no doubt about it. I think still. uh, But anyway, so he kicks a 48-yard field goal, which is a record in the Super Bowl. By the way, I I have a book that has Super Bowl records and about the game and what what, uh, records were set in that game. And I looked at this and I go, how is this game not more remembered? It set like 100 records. And I thought it was the fourth game. So you're going to be setting a a lot of records. That was a record, however, the 48-yard field goal. That would stand for 24 years. Wow. Until Steve Christie for Buffalo in the second Buffalo. um, Shellacking. uh, Shellacking by Dallas, Super Bowl 28, I believe. Kicked a 54-yarder. Let's remember, though. In, in the Georgia Dome, he kicked a 54-yarder. Jan Stenerud kicked a 48-yarder on a bad field. On a damp day at 55 degrees, it's a much better kick, in my mind. No doubt. In, fa- in fact, the fact that Steve Christie will allow his name to be mentioned, I think, says a lot about him. It does. And and I think, you know, goes to the character not only of he, John, but of the rest of that Buffalo Bills team, which is yep. why they couldn't get over the hump. Uh, second quarter, Stenerud, uh ends up being big as well, uh, kicks a 32 and a 25-yard field goal. But, you know, it's nine to nothing at this point. And this is anybody's football game. Sure. Uh, both teams looked a little tight, um, but also let's remember these are two of the best defenses in football. Yeah. Um, Kansas City moves the ball on uh, their next possession after their field goal. Uh, John Henderson of the Vikings, the wide receiver, had fumbled the ball. Kansas City got it back. Um, but then they get intercepted on the seven. I mean, it's just Paul Krause, the guy I mentioned, the safety who was in the Hall of Fame, intercepts uh, the ball. Um, at the Minnesota seven. Well, then the, the big moment that really is where this game changed was um, Minnesota's Charlie West fumbled a punt. Um, Kansas City gets the ball on the 19-yard line. There's Charlie. Sorry, Charlie. Uh, on the 19-yard line. And this is the famous, if you watch the game, the 65 toss power trap. There, uh, you know, yes. It's the spider Y banana of its day of its day. Uh, it was, it, it's an, it's basically, it's just a counterplay to Mike Garrett. And I should right. mention Mike Garrett, the, the running back and future, uh, less, well, pretty successful athletic director at USA, uh, for a while, for a while. 
Um, Heisman Trophy winner. Yep, but this is the famous with uh, Hank Stram actually calling a play. He sends Gloucester Richardson, one of the great running backs for a Kansas City, in with the play, 65 toss power trap. And uh, uh, Garrett gets into the end zone. It's 16 to nothing at the half. And at this point, Dawson said it. They're going to score 16 points and a half on our defense? I don't think so. But still, you know. It's 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 a three possession game, true, but you have a whole half. Let's jump to the halftime for just a minute because I said it much more exciting than the game. Uh, the Southern University marching band, Doc Severinsen, Lionel Hampton, other jazz musicians. Remember, uh, I like that. It's in New Orleans. First yeah. one in New Orleans, and a lot of jazz being played. We're all in favor of that. But but somewhere somebody decided, you know, you know what you know what the kids like with all the football. It's too cold for scantily clad cheerleaders. It's It's always a New York guy. It's always no matter where in the it is. It's the same. Always the same guy. Scantily clad cheerleaders. Um. So so what did that guy decide to do? Reenactment of the Battle of New Orleans. Excuse me. They bring cannon out on the field. Guys in full dress as if British and uh, American Army. And they have this reenactment. Um, there's smoke from the cannons all over the field. Guys dropping like flies as they're as they're just ripped apart by uh, actual, <laughs> actual, by actual <laughs> Yeah, it's, wow. it is one of wow. the most bizarre. They killed two, three dozen people just for entertainment. Say, I tell you what. Bring us a couple poor. Blow them the hell up. It won't matter. Listen. No care. Listen. If Scully says you can burn down the stadium with a with the lousy ass Dodger fans in it, we can kill two dozen people for a halftime. Well, I tell you, my favorite Super Bowl was clearly Super Bowl Four. I tell you, the game itself, not much happened. But in a reenactment of the Battle of New Orleans, which, by the way, occurred after the end of the War of 1812, and there was no point for it whatsoever. Uh, speaking of no points, I don't see any points on the board for the Vikings. However, uh, love that game because he had a reenactment of the Battle of New Orleans and actually killed a couple of dozen people. And Scully loves that. Why? <laughs> just this created this huge narrative about one of the most iconic good guys in the history of any sport. Oh, Vince Scully had a dark, the dark side of Vince Scully. That that should be dark side of Vince Scully. A recurring character to this show is the dark side of Vince Scully. So we should have Vin come on and comment on any sort of sporting things going on. You know what I'd do in that bubble? Anybody who stepped outside, I'd blow them apart with an AK. You you would, Vin, yourself? You yeah. would? I'd tell you, I'd like nothing more than to stand outside the door and to see one of those overpaid kids walk out the door. I'd cut them in half with an AK. Hey, how do you like them apples? Wow. So I want to ask you how, how Vin Scully called this element of the halftime show, because at, at the end of it, I've been told that they get the uh, reenactor playing Andrew Jackson who was the general and won the battle, the meaningless mm-hmm. battle, as you referred to earlier. Yeah. And they, they, they carried him off on their shoulders that, you know, as, as yeah. the, as the new Orleans hero that he, that he clearly uh, is to many people. Mm-hmm. So what was Vin's uh, call of, of Andrew Jackson being walked out of the stadium on, on the shoulders of the victorious 
you know, soldiers underneath them. And there we have it, the final of the Battle of New Orleans with our score, the American Army 36, the British nothing. And there's the head coach, Andrew Jackson, being carried off the field. A little bit later, Jackson will get drunk and murder a couple of his slaves. Oh my goodness, I can't believe we're unearthing all of this tape and this material that <laughs> the dark side of Vin Scully heretofore has yet to been discovered. My yeah, goodness gracious. I tell you. <laughs> I had a couple of rums with Jean Lafitte, and he said, I tell you, Jackson likes winning the battle, but he likes nothing more than murdering one of his slaves. Oh, my gosh. All right. There it is. Uh, 16 to nothing. Moving into the third quarter after the most bizarre halftime on this on this show. What's that? A triple E. Yeah. Listen on this show. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure we'll be cancel culture is all, you know, up in arms. Oh, my God. Are you kidding? (laughs) Yes. This show. This show is offensive to me and the other four people listening. Well, three of you are in the same fucking room. Jesus. All right, third quarter, right. 16 to nothing, Kansas third, City. Third, third quarter. <laughs> um, on the first possession, Great their first work. possession of the second half, um, the Vikings drive 69 yards and score a touchdown. Dave Osborne, longtime Viking, tough, uh, tough running back, uh, Dave Osborne, um, on a four-yard touchdown run. And they're talking on the broadcast, Mark, as you can imagine, what are the most cliche things that you can say at this time? Boy, I tell you, Kansas City left some points on the board there. The 48-yard field goal, but those other two drives, you know, those should have been touchdowns. And boy, maybe they're going to regret that. Uh, Pat Summerall and Jack Buck, a couple of hacks. Uh, Cap, there's the ball to Dave Osborne. Vikings are in the end zone, I tell you, Pat. Chiefs are gonna gonna be upset about the points they left on the board. Yeah, I tell you what, they're Jack. They're gonna be madder than Jackson without a slave to murder. All right, uh, so Kansas City gets the ball on the next time. Third <laughs> gets, time, well, comedy comes in threes. Yeah. Uh, Kansas City gets the ball on the kickoff, though. Six play, eighty-two yard drive, and this one again is famous, Mark. If you watch the um, the NFL films, it's the great Otis Taylor uh, touchdown. Yeah. Um, one of the things I need to point out is I talked about, um, halftime adjustments that the Vikings had made some really great ones against, uh, particularly against the Rams in that uh, divisional playoff game. Joe Cap even talks about the fact they didn't do anything at halftime of this game. They're down 16 to nothing. And, uh, they're just, he, you know, he said he's given the offense hell. We got to get better, but they're really, they're, they're not making any adjustments and Bud, Grant says later, we didn't have a sophisticated passing attack. We, you know, the things that we really, really needed to do, we shouldn't have. Now, I'll get to the statistics on the game. They've passed a lot more than they threw. I don't think that was necessarily the problem. But Cap says, I should have thrown more on first down and all of this. But I think the bottom line is they just didn't make any adjustments. And I think what really hurt them is then they went down and drove and, and scored and thought, okay, we're, you know, we're back in this thing. Here we go. Nine point yeah. game, lots of time. Sure. At this point, like I said, they had moved the ball some. They just weren't. Uh, it was a bend, don't break situation. But then Kansas City, six plays, 82 yards. Um, Otis Taylor catches an out pass about 10 or 11 yards, breaks the tackle of Irshel Maccabee. Um, and then Carl Kosulke's, uh, he kind of juke 
breaks the tackle of Carl Kosalki uh, down near the uh, end. So I think I'm about the 15 and we have a 41 yard touchdown pass should be pointed out that Carl Kosalki is well known because uh, in a uh, boy here, cancel culture is going to jump all over us. Now I'm quoting is the famous where a Hank Stram says, Kosalki's running around like a Chinese fire drill out there. They don't know what's going on. They were so confused. It's a culturally inappropriate thing to say. It is what he said. And sadly, Carl Kosalki, we talked about this, and you can see if you're watching on the YouTube now, is uh, a couple of years later, he's uh, paralyzed, I believe, in a car accident. And uh, so he was yeah, a... And, uh, and kind of at the height of his career, right? He was a I good, mean, he was a very good player. Yeah. He would have been, yeah. the, you know, they had Kraus and Kosalki, and they bring in Bobby, they, I think Bobby Bryant was there already. I mean, they had really good secondary, but... I was, Unfortunately, he won't be with them in 73 when they get back to a Super Bowl. Right. Um, because uh, because he is uh, paralyzed. Um, all right. So that gets us to the fourth quarter. It's 23 to seven in favor of Kansas City. And essentially, the competitive phase of Super Bowl four is over. Um, Dawson was right. 16 points for that Viking offense to try to score against yeah. that defense. Right. Um Joe Cap leaves with a separated shoulder. Aaron Brown falls on him, separates his shoulder. Um, and that happens to be the last play that he ever has as a, as a Minnesota Viking. Gary Quazo comes in to the game to quarterback, who's a name that bounces around in the 60s and early 70s as a backup a couple of different places. Um, the last play offensively for them is an interception. Quazo intercepted by, intercepted by Emmett Thomas the great defensive back and Hall of Famer, uh, who, by the way, will be voted into the Hall of Fame with two guys that he coached, which is Daryl Green and Art Monk. Wow. Because um, he coached cool. for, for Washington at that point, directly coaching uh, Daryl Green as a defensive coach and Art Monk. They all three went in at the same time. For 31 years, he was an assistant in the National Football League, just retired a year, year and a half, maybe two years ago. Uh, but one of the great Remarkable. defensive coordinators, one of the great names ever. Wow. Yeah, Emmett Thomas is just one of those lifers who was good at everything he did in the NFL. Um, so yeah. they hold them scoreless. Twenty-three to seven is the end. Here, here are your final numbers on it um, for yards: Kansas City two seventy-three to two thirty-nine. Um, this is the big one um, for rushing. I, I mentioned the cap was saying, well, you know, we didn't throw enough on first down. No, the problem was you couldn't run the football. It's sixty-seven yards on nineteen carries. Uh, Kansas City ran 42 times for 151 yards in the game. Um, wow. 172 passing yards to Minnesota, Kansas City, 122. But here's the story. What will kill you, Mark? What's the thing that will kill you in big games? Turnovers. Five to one sure. in favor of Kansas City. And that really was the story of, of, of that Super Bowl and their inability to make adjustments. And again, I think in hindsight, Cap thinking they needed to throw more on first down. I don't think that was it at all. I think they needed to figure out a better way to run. The stack defense of Kansas City that I mentioned earlier was a problem for them. Um, they went head up on nose guard, went head up on the center. Or they played a defensive tackle as a nose guard, head up on the center. Um, they put the linebackers directly behind the defensive lineman. was not how things worked in the NFL. You run a 4-3 defense. They're in the gaps. This made it a lot harder for the offensive line of uh, the Vikings. The defensive lineman could basically just occupy the lineman, and the linebackers could then make a lot of uh, a lot of tackles. I also want to point out that they uh, 
I believe there were nine African-Americans starting on the defense for that Kansas City Chief team, which was never going to be the case in the NFL at that point in time. Willie Lanier was the first African-American middle linebacker because that bullshit that we listened to for years, if it couldn't be you know, a quarterback or a middle linebacker, uh, African-American player doesn't think. The brains. Uh, I don't have a brain for that. Well, that load of crap. Willie Lanier, the Hall of Famer at middle linebacker. But they never were able to make any sort of um, – adjustments. Joe Cap, as I mentioned, last game he ever played for the Minnesota Vikings, which is which is the it would have been such a different 1970s had Joe, Joe Cap because Tarkenton wouldn't have come back. Essentially, I don't think Tarkenton would have. Come, I don't think he would have stayed in New York, but I don't know that he would have come back. He is in a contract dispute and ends up moving uh, to New England, where he plays a couple of years in New England as a Patriot. Uh, they're really, really bad men. Um, Jim Plunkett comes in, Cap's out of football. And famously, uh, Joe Cap. beyond that, uh, the thing he's probably most remembered for is he's the head coach of the Cal Bears and the famous um, uh, The Bands on the Field, where Kevin Moen scores. Uh, off Mark Harmon is the kicker for Stanford, and I played high school football against him in Northern Virginia. I should point out, I believe he's a. You dentist. love Mark Harmon. You love him. Uh, you I think do. he's one of the. Our, you think he's one of the best actors of our time. It's not the same Mark Harmon. It's not it's a different Mark Harmon. The other one Mark, was a quarterback. Yeah, I would have thought UCLA. Were you at UCLA with Mark Harmon. Well, you know, yeah. Uh, at, at the same time in the. Late uh, I don't know. I think he may have been a little bit. No, he's. A, he, I think he's like seventy-two. So he's a couple of years older than you. Um, <laughs> Uh, uh, here's kind of the epilogue for the teams. Um, for Kansas City, it was really the good times were essentially over. Um, after Super Bowl IV, um, they only, between 1969 and 1990, 1970 and 1990, they only made two playoff appearances. Wow. 1971 and, one and 86. One of them was against the uh, Dolphins in that longest game ever on Christmas Day, where yeah. the Dolphins... Um, started their run. That was 1971. Yep. They got to the Super Bowl that year, lost, but then they went the next two. But that was a great game, and Kansas City had their chances to win they that game. should have won it, probably. And they really should have many, many times over. And, uh, yeah, and then the next time after 71 was 86, and that yeah, was and it those, for 10 years. Those were the only two seasons after the Super Bowl season that uh, Kansas City had double-digit wins. That's tremendously weird. Yeah, and it really kept, I think, Hank Stram out of the Hall of Fame for a long time. Yeah. Because, again, now we're coming into the most recognizable period of the NFL because of television in the 70s, and this runs essentially over. He yeah, spends he's a couple of bad, Spends a couple of crap years in New Orleans, not necessarily all due to him. He comes in there, with, and Archie Manning is hurt both the seasons that he's there, and that turns into nothing. And then he ends up doing a great job with Jack Buck. On CBS Radio, one of yeah. my favorite pairings ever. And to your point, Stram, I learned as much from listening to Hank Stram talk about football on that than I learned from anything. And this will be yeah. the third 49er reference in this show. And that's, you know, about par for the course when it's not my show. But Hank Stram and Vince Scully, the aforementioned Vince Scully, were, were the broadcasters for the 1981 game between the 49ers and the Cowboys. The, the catch catch game you you go to youtube and listen and listen to that game which I clearly have and or you just listen to the distilled four minute drive which i obviously have and um it's it's vince scully and it's and it's hank stram and they're great together they were they really are yeah yeah i, I need to go back and watch i've watched way too much old football i was saying to my wife she's like what are you watching i go 32 year old football game week 11 bears you know whatever and and what does that do for her overall respect for you as a husband and as a human. 
uh, reinforces where that respect lies, which is uh, in the sub basement of the of the home that is respect. Sub basement. So, so there's like a basement of yeah. the basement. Basically. You got to get out of the basement, and get lower. You go in the sub basement of the basement, and that's where of the house. The level of respect. Called respect. Okay, yep. sure. Gotcha. Uh, right, Minnesota, in contrast, following the loss, they went to the playoffs 13 times in that same period. Yeah, and went to three more Super Bowls. Uh, yeah. Lost all three of them, and that is why both Bud Grant and Hank Stram are in the Hall of Fame. And uh, Grant went in nine years before Stram did. And, and and Grant went in. But if you look at the Vikings, John, you say Carl Eller should be in the Hall of Fame. It took Paul Krause forever to get in yeah. the Hall of Fame. Yeah. When you don't win Super Bowls, cost you know, fair or not, the, the right. way you're judged in, in the NFL, which is unlike really any other sport, if you ask me, I don't think even great basketball players, I think, you know, you're judged by titles there to some degree to obviously some degree. but baseball's like, all statistically driven essentially yes and and hockey i think is 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 a mix but the now, nfl man if you don't win a super bowl i'll, I'll say this in baseball hill, you've got a hill to climb i'll say this in baseball though there are also guys who are in um because of championships i think if if the pirates don't win in 60 bill mazeroski is not in the hall of fame in my mind that's a good that's a good one he's yeah. a great player he's an incredibly great uh, defensive player particularly bill mazeroski but they don't win in 1960 um, I don't think he's in, but, but you're right about baseball is so statistically driven. The NBA essentially the same. Um, but in the NFL, well, you play fewer games. Um, there are very fewer, even within the era that you play, the common opponents might not be there because you play so many fewer games. I mean, you may go five and six years without playing a, a, a franchise. Um, so you may not come up against uh, other players, but uh, I think, yeah, I think, I think, it, I think it's unfair. Paul Krause certainly deserved to be in in the hall of fame, and he but is now. It. But it took him forever. Yep, yeah, certainly deserved lost, to get in early. Lost four been. Super Bowls, yeah. So there it is. There's the road to Super Bowl four. So what it really did, though, and the reason that we wanted to talk about it was that it reinforced that the AFL was now as good as the NFL. And I think if you would start, if you would see moving forward. Super Bowl five is won by, well, it's two NFL teams in Super Bowl five, essentially, because the it, Colts it is, the yeah. AFC. Um, Super Bowl six, the Cowboys win, but then you have the Dolphins run, followed by the Pittsburgh run with Oakland thrown in there. The old AFL, um, now Pittsburgh, of course, was an NFL team, but the, the AFL teams that were now the AFC teams were on a par, if not better than NFC teams through that period. Yeah. They were. They were. NFC had a major run in the early 80s to mid 90s. But yep. it's been, you know, with New England, clearly. Yeah. And uh, you know, Baltimore. Now, Baltimore is an old NFL team. Well, actually, no, not this version. It's not an old NFL. Team. No, no. This is actually it's a new NFL team. <laughs> it's an expansion. Right. So it's it's a it's a, uh, after, you know, the uh, American Football Conference. But, yeah, that's that is fascinating and not talked about. And the only thing that's really remembered from that Super Bowl, John, is Hank Stram being mic'd up. Yep. And that's really what most people voting for the Hall of Fame or whatever probably knew of Hank Stram, too, right. for all those years, which the, is. The, uh, and, you know, let's keep matriculating down the field, boys. Sixty five pass power trap. Leonard, good stuff. You, I, man. I just, I've watched them so many times. Was, Leonard, what are you doing in that huddle? What are you? What's taking so long? The guys are talking. Well, tell them to be quiet, Leonard. And Dawson always saying, you know, when it was when things were going well, I was Lenny. 
When it wasn't, I was a Leonard. Except we pulled, uh, Stram did pull Dawson at the end of the game. He ends up being the uh, MVP of the game. I think I mentioned that earlier. And he ends up pulling him with a few minutes left and sends Mike Livingston, who really deserved to get some snaps in that game, given the five-game winning streak that really helped them. They could have collapsed like a house of cards at that point. Um, but he, he's in, you, you, you did a great job, Leonard, a great job. So he's very uh, serious there. Lenny Dawson loses that Super Bowl. The Chiefs lose that Super Bowl. He may not be a Hall of Famer. I would agree with you. He was the most successful quarterback. It's amazing. And they were the All winningest right, team in the NFL. Um, but he, you're, you're right. He may not have gotten there. It went longer than I wanted it to, but we got a couple of Vince Scullys wanting to kill people in. And I think that really is the hallmark <laughs> of this show. The dark side of it <laughs> really Scully. is. And it, and it's and it's uh, less time than your 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 last one. So so you're getting so you know 1941. So it's you're you're getting better. All right. Do we want to just before we get out of here? Do we want to let people know next week's de- deep dive? Yes, let's do it. It's uh, about uh, Jesse Owens, second greatest Olympic moment ever. <laughs> I would argue that, and I will argue that vociferously next Friday. Uh, remarkable run to get there. Remarkable uh, story in his life and what he's had to, what he had to overcome and then what he had to overcome after he reached the pinnacle, you know, that big 10 championship the year before the 36 Olympics is as iconic as it comes. We'll get into that. And uh, the, the, obviously the 36 Olympics will get into, you know, all of the Nazi mocking that we can. And, um, but then afterwards it's tough for him. And his response to it is really interesting, John. And I think we'll get into that. I think we'll have some fun conversations. So Jesse Owens next week. All right. Well, for Mark Ferreira and Jeff Taylor, this is John Pelkey. Thanks for sitting through our deep dive, the road to Super Bowl four. We'll be back on Monday where we're going to have to unpack all of this stuff that happened that we didn't talk about today, despite the fact that Joe Conley is like, there's no way you're going to do a deep dive. (laughs) My God. But it's like, I did the research. We're going to talk about this crap, whether people don't want to or or not. Right, right. We said we don't do this for you. We do it because it's the only thing that keeps Mark and I from going Bruce Dern and walking into the ocean and never being heard from again. It's, you know, that again, the truth of that getting starker and starker as the days go on. <laughs> All right. Have a great weekend, everybody. We will be back on Monday. Thanks for listening.